with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to the Monday edition of After 9. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker, your Monday host. And for our final show of the year, uh, we have um, two of the uh, most venerable, credible people in BC's alternative media. We, um, first of all, did a phone interview earlier with uh, Gurpreet Singh, who is um, one of the lead journalists uh, in Surrey and uh, a major advocate for um, a pluralistic secular India and a pluralistic secular Indian diaspora. Second half of the program, uh, we have Charlie Smith, longtime editor of the Georgia Strait newspaper, the, uh, um, I guess, uh, the senior member of BC's Alternative Media. And we're going to be doing a um, year in review with him, looking at news from across the country and uh, around the province. But uh, uh, let's go into uh, Gurpreet Singh. We've got a good interview with him, and then we'll uh, be talking to Charlie at uh, mid-hour. So welcome to After 9, Monday edition, last show of the year. I'm on the line with Gurpreet Singh, who um, is a, uh, a colleague, an ally, hosts a show uh, on uh, Spice FM uh, radio in Vancouver. Uh, and um, we're going to be talking today about um, um, various pieces of India-related news of interest to all Canadians, but particularly to uh, the largest um, visible minority community here in Prince George. And uh, it's a significant portion of our city. And uh, we often don't think about um, the Indian diaspora when we make political decisions or look at global trends. And generally, that's a mistake. Uh, not only are people from this diaspora a huge part of British Columbia, uh, but also... It is India, not Britain, that is the second largest English-speaking country in the world in terms of total English speakers. With all the attention we've paid to Brexit in the past year, we've paid very little to India's political crises. So I want to thank you for coming on the air and uh, helping us to uh, understand what's going on. Thanks to you, Stuart, for giving this opportunity to speak with you and to speak with your audience. So uh, I want to begin um, with the first uh, the first episode we had of this show back in August. Mm. Uh, the Indian Parliament had just uh, was debating suspending the self-government and local autonomy rights of the state of Kashmir. Right. And uh, we haven't checked in on that story in the past four months. Can you give us a, a synopsis of what's been happening in the Kashmir crisis um, in the four months since we last covered this story? There are a number of things to be uh, noticed. One is the Kashmir is the only Muslim-dominated uh, state in India, uh, where the uh, Muslim population actually um, dominates. So. Uh, the idea of behind uh, scrapping special rights given to the state was to polarize the Hindu majority against Muslims in India and to isolate this uh, minority community. 
I mean, Muslims are a minority in the rest of the India and they are being hounded every day under this government, right? So basically, the idea was to demonize uh, uh, Muslims, to scapegoat them and polarize the Hindu majority because this narrative has been there for a number of years now that uh, uh, Muslims in Kashmir are seen as potential terrorists. Uh, they are blamed for any violence uh, taking place anywhere in India and uh, those kind of things. So Modi government actually took advantage of the fact that they have a brute majority in the house without any consultation, without any uh, dialogue or debate. They just decided to scrap the uh, special rights given to the state uh, under Indian constitution. And uh, they d decided to uh, split the state in two parts and uh, bringing them directly under the control of New Delhi. So this was done uh, uh, in the name of uh, security and war on terror. But the real intentions are uh, very clear. They wanted to uh, tell the majority Hindu community that this is what uh, we have been... Because BJP, let's face it, has always a mandate to uh, take away the special rights given to the state. They have always been saying for a number of years now that once we are elected to power, we are going to um, take away the special rights given to the state. We will make it part of uh, the Indian mainstream. Uh, ironically, this party has also had uh, ties with some uh, Kashmiri, uh, mainstream Kashmiri political parties uh, who are seen as uh, puppets by the uh, local population. They always see them as sellouts. So they have always had these uh, ties with them. But uh, after this was done, so when they detained a number of people, among them were also the, the uh, those who were part of the, the same uh, political force that was once allied with BJP. So those kind of contradictions are also very visible. People need to pay attention. Yeah. So really, um, there are. Um, although this is a national policy, there are really two stories. There's what's happening in Kashmir, and then there's what's happening to Muslims in the rest of India, where they right. comprise about six percent of the population. So how are things, how has this impacted um, this 6% minority throughout the rest of India? Well, you know what, uh, Muslims, uh, BJP actually is part of RSS, which is a Hindu supremacist group. It's an ultra-Hindu nationalist organization that wants to transform India into Hindu theocracy. And from their perspective, Muslims and Christians, they follow alien religions and they don't belong here. And they should be treated as second-class citizens. That is one thing. When it comes to uh, other minorities like Sikhs, the Buddhists, um, the, uh, or Jains, they always see them as part of the Hindu fold. So uh, the, there's a, uh, also a sense of assimilation on part of those uh, minority groups, including the Sikhs. So BJP, uh, on one hand, uh, is uh, like uh, legitimizing violence against Christians and Muslims, uh, blatantly. On the other, they are trying to assimilate these other minority groups as part of the Hindu fold. So this larger design of RSS BJP needs to be understood to see, uh, to, to see what, what exactly is going on. And after the, ever since Modi became the Prime Minister of India in 2014, we have seen how the uh, physical attacks on Muslims in particular and Christians in general have grown. I mean, uh, when Christmas comes, they always increase surveillance outside churches to ensure that no uh, no one is converted to Christianity. And that's this also a myth uh, about uh, which is being propagated by BJP against Christian community all the time. 
and with muslims they always see them as potential terrorists so uh, they also now have gone too, too far i mean in terms of uh, uh, what we say moral policing especially uh, by patronizing cow vigilantes who do not want uh, muslims to eat beef in the first place so they have been uh, bringing these laws in different states where uh, beef consumption is being banned and also any muslim uh, on suspicion of carrying uh, um, beef in his tiffin uh, is potentially i mean potentially faces a risk to be killed or lynched so those kind of things are happening right now in india and in fact um, i mean this this has echoes of course in the islamophobia that goes on around the world i right. can recall a um, uh, a white supremacist group in quebec that uh, sought to prohibit uh, halal and kosher butchery uh, with a very similar narrative. So in a way, I think we often forget that um, we are part of this old, formerly British imperial world, and so much of our politics end up resembling uh, India's to a, to a greater extent than we realize. Now, of course, the narrative about um, Hinduism and Hindu supremacy is very, very different because... Christianity has fewer religions that are outgrowths from it, like um, uh, the Jan or Buddhism or uh, or the the Sikh movement. You know, really, we just have uh, the Mormons. But um, in uh, but my understanding was that Christians um, that it, that legally Christians were considered Hindus at least up until the 1990s. That the Hindu code um, was uh, applied to them. Has that changed with BJP in power? Well, you know what, BJP has always seen, as I mentioned before, Christianity is always seen as a uh, foreign religion uh, by the Hindu supremacists. They never have accepted it as part of the the Indian culture. I mean, each religion, whether it's Islam, whether it's Christianity, may have its roots out elsewhere, but we have to face it that these religions have grown in India, have been accepted by people for a number of years now. And there are a number of reasons. I mean, one of the uh, one of the common uh, commonality between why people embrace Islam, why people embrace Christianity, why people embrace uh, Sikhism or Buddhism has to do with the caste system in, in the Hindu society. I mean, because of the caste system, uh, people are not being treated nicely. Uh, uh, those so-called untouchables are always kept out of the temples. So they were forced to embrace other religions, which were more modern, uh, uh, whether it's Sikhism, Islam, or Christianity. So uh, uh, unless we address that issue uh, with honesty, uh, nothing is going to change. People will keep on embracing some other religious groups. Even within the Sikh community, people who feel that... Uh, uh, the people who are uh, who belong to the so-called low caste groups, they feel slighted, so they are inclined to embrace some other sects uh, which have mushroomed over the years in the in, in Punjab. So th this is an issue which has to be dealt with. Unless we deal with this, nothing is going to change. So really, at the core of all this is the defense of an ascent of um, of the caste system, that when you strip away all the theology and all the religious observance, mm. it's that um, in some ways BJP wants to undo that original constitution from 70 years ago, and in a way, um, Kashmir is just one part of that. Now, a lot of the way people have talked about Kashmir um, 
in the West is there's been this real focus on um, the competition to uh, dam and exploit tributaries to the Indus for hydroelectric energy. And the way in which Pakistan and India are in this race to do hydroelectric development and Pakistan is um, and Pakistan's initiative there is part of China's belt and road policy. Right. How much is the attack on Kashmir environmental versus geopolitical versus Hindu supremacist? How do we understand the mix of these factors? Well, this mix is there. I mean, people need to accept it because this, uh, all these um, big forces, they are trying to be the stakeholders. But the real stakeholders are the people of Kashmir. It's the people of Kashmir who have to decide their future. They are not being given that opportunity. And rather what is happening, India is trying to uh, uh, say that Kashmir is our integral part. We won't let it go. Pakistan continues to claim that Kashmir belongs to them because it's a Muslim-dominated province. And, of course, uh, China has its own stake in that region. But let's face it, uh, I mean, it's, at the end of the day, people of Kashmir need to be given the right to decide their future. Unfortunately, the first Indian Prime Minister after in uh, British left, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, had promised in UN, I mean, we are going to give them the right to plebiscite, the right to self-determination. That right was never given to the people of Kashmir. On the contrary, what is happening, uh, the Indian government has uh, increased the number of troops uh, deployed in that region. They How many have, troops have they now sent? Well, it's uh, if, if you talk about the average, it's uh, almost like uh, um, anywhere from uh, 50 to 100 soldiers for, for, say, 10 Kashmiris, something like that. It's a very heavy troop deployment. And recently, they have increased the number ever since the... Uh, this um, uh, section 371 was 70 was revoked, and since then, the Indian government itself has acknowledged that they have arrested more than 5,000 people. Now that could be a conservative figure, but the the fact that it comes from the Indian government directly it says a lot. I mean, if even 5,000 is not a small number. No, that's um, that's uh, that's an extraordinary uh, number. If that's what, how the government's advertising what they're doing, so. But it sounds like the soldiers are, are mainly there in order to – it wasn't as though this was preceded by a big uprising. Essentially, they've been sent in advance of there being any action in Kashmir as an effort in intimidation. So um, what um, – uh, so there was a, terror, a, a state government in Kashmir. Um, what has happened to that government? Um uh, are they trying to still govern the territory? Are they um, fleeing the country? Are they, uh, or are they, they just sort of um, uh, intimidated into silence? There is no such government at this time in Kashmir. I mean, the Kashmir is totally under direct uh, control of New Delhi right now. So, I mean, who, no who was the government before they repealed uh, Section 372? Yeah, it's it's very it's it's something people need to know that BJP. And uh, the uh, Mahbuba Muftis, PDP, they were running the government together. It was a coalition government and uh -huh. BJP was part of it. So now all of a sudden those people have become anti-national. They have become uh, uh, anti-India. I mean, among the people who have been detained in Kashmir are people from the PDP who were the alliance partner of BJP before this happened. So now this, this uh, again is a big contradiction. On one hand, 
you defame them and uh, describe them as separatists and anti-national. On the other hand, whenever it is convenient to you, you forge alliance with them to run a government. And because of that reason, these people were always seen as uh, puppets uh, in the in, in the Kashmir Valley. I mean, you have actually uh, brought them together. Even the separatists and the so-called moderates, they are on the same page now because of what, what uh, the government has done. It sounds like Narendra Modi is not exactly somebody it's a good idea to get into bed with if he can turn on his allies like this. And uh, That's what he's capable uh, of doing. So um, anyway, we're going to take a uh, short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how some of this shakes down um, right here in Canada. Still on the line with me from Surrey is uh, Gurpreet Singh. Um, I... Uh, I found myself, uh, one of the th reasons I'm very interested in this story is that I ran afoul of some of Narendra Modi and his allies' political machinations um, because uh, we um, uh, inadvertently, my uh, political campaign in Surrey, um, made an alliance with what seemed to be an organization that was interested in Hindu-Sikh cooperation and uh, healing rifts in the uh, Indian diaspora. Many people, I think, don't realize is that um, British Columbia, in some ways, is to um, uh, is to the Punjab um, as the state of Massachusetts is to Ireland. Right? Mm -hmm. That there's um, a freedom struggle going on in a territory. And there's a particular area that becomes the center of people who've left the territory but still want to support the freedom struggle. And so, um, you know, a lot of money that has been raised in the past when there was more, um, when things were more intense, when there was the state of emergency in India, um, it's come out of Surrey. And so there have in the past been divisions between separatist and non-separatist Sikhs between uh, Sikhs and other members of the Hindu of the pardon me of the Indian diaspora um, and to some degree that submerged as the amount of violence in uh, Punjab has subsided since the 1980s mm. but what we're seeing now is something that um, We've certainly seen in the past as a political strategy during the 1920s and 30s. It's a political party that doesn't just operate in one country, but begins to look at politically mobilizing and taking power where members of its diaspora live. And so um, we found ourselves allied with BJP supporters in the end, much to our surprise and horror. And... Um, I understand that this is not totally out of character, that the Indian government has a new interest in stoking nationalism and nationalist political activity on the part of Hindus abroad. Mm. So, Stuart, so uh, we shouldn't be surprise, surprised because ever since uh, Modi became the Prime Minister, those people who have always supported BJP or RSS uh, now feel emboldened. I mean, for a number of years, they were in the closets because it was mainly the Congress party which was ruling India for so many years. I mean, even in, under Congress, uh, uh, we have seen how they have been uh, trying to, uh, what we say, propagate soft Hindutva 
or even extreme hindutva uh, uh, at moments i mean especially what happened in 1984 for shortly after the assassination of then prime minister indira gandhi by her sikh bodyguards and the sikh community was targeted all across india uh, they were uh, uh, lynched by the mobs led by the leaders of uh, uh, slain leaders congress party and bjp uh, supporters actually played a significant role in that violence so you can see that this threat has always been there but ever since modi became the prime minister with brute majority now they feel emboldened now they have stepped forward now they have taken leadership in the indian diaspora now they are being more vocal more articulate so this, this shouldn't surprise anyone but uh, but the thing is uh, the way they are trying to uh, silence all the voices of dissent not only uh, those coming from uh, the uh, supporters of uh, separate sikh homeland but also the secular voices are being uh, targeted they are trying to uh, silence them as well i mean they don't want any kind of narrative which sells secularism or diversity or pluralism all they want is the, that people should support all these attempts to hinduize india under narendra modi so again there's this attempt to undo the original indian constitution Absolutely. to undo the secularism undo the pluralism that was part originally of old indian nationalism the opposite of hindu nationalism so totally. how is this shaking down in communities like uh, in surrey and in smaller communities like uh, williams lake or kamloops or prince george here well you know what it's hard to figure out what is going on in the interior because i don't live there uh, but I, and i'm not sure about the demography but in surrey definitely uh there is there are some pockets where hindus are in majority and there are uh, pockets where sikhs are in majority but uh, because sikhs have uh, uh, been living here for a number of years now they have they are the major stakeholders so what is essentially happening right now the rss and the bjp is also trying to penetrate into some of the sikh temples because they have influence on the local indian consulate and in indian consulate can actually influence people Uh, by exerting some kind of pressure uh, by denying them visa or putting their names on the blacklist so that's how they are trying to operate they are trying to increase the influence of the gurdwaras trying to uh, increase their penetration in, in sikh temples and with the help of some sikh allies uh, there are of course some uh, so called moderate sikhs who support narendra modi and his government and who want ever uh, uh, support the, uh, the the sikhs who have been asking for a separate homeland or they will never be vocal Uh, in support of the muslims who are uh, upset with what is happening in india right now so they are completely you can say uh, pro establishment elements and uh, bjp and rss is trying to wield their influence on the community through them right and, be- and so doing things like putting people on terror watch lists or mm-hmm. otherwise obstructing immigration you could stop uh, bjp can use that influence to gain leverage by preventing a family from reunifying preventing older relatives from being looked after or visiting and these are uh, these are bread and butter questions i mean we have one, one fresh example reputaman singh malik the former air india suspect who is sikh millionaire he was recently given a visa to visit india i mean malik was acquitted by the courts that is one thing but when malik went back to the courts to seek some kind of uh, compensation he was told by the same judge that uh, our uh, not guilty verdict was not a pronouncement of your innocence 
I mean, it, it, despite that, he got the visa. There are a couple of things people should understand. One is that they are trying to assuage the old wounds of the Sikhs uh, who um, were being uh, hounded under the Congress government. So they are trying to send out this message that we are open to accept you. But a million dollar question is that uh, why you are being mean to other minorities? And secondly, uh, even uh, from the Sikh perspective, not everything is A-OK under BJP. I mean, they are the ones who banned Sikhs for justice. Sikhs for justice has been asking for right to self-determination. They were seeking a right for a, what we say referendum uh, in 2020 for a Sikh homeland. That organization has been banned. Whereas Vishwa Hindu Parishad, an extreme Hindu group, which has been saying that we will turn India into Hindu theocracy by 2020, they were never uh, banned. They were never, uh, I mean, police never arrested those leaders. Rather, when the leader of Vishwa Hindu Parishad, Ashok Singhal, passed away, Mr. Modi pay, paid him tributes. He was given a state-level, what we say, uh, kind of a, uh, a funeral. So the, the, this hypocrisy is there. I mean, people need to open their eyes and smell the coffee. And uh, the way the, uh, BJP is trying to, uh, uh, what we say, create divisions between the Sikhs and the Muslims. I mean, around this time when we see so many Sikhs have come forward to show their solidarity with the Kashmiri protesters, in US, in England, in Canada. So we don't need a rocket science to understand why the BJP government is doing it at this time. Why BJP government is opening doors for people like Ripodam Singh Malik. Why those people are being give, given red carpet welcome. So we need to understand how they're trying to create divisions and weaken the broader social justice movement, which has brought together Kashmiris and also the Sikhs. And uh, just uh, one last question. Um... Uh, so, uh, one of our provincial cabinet ministers, Minister of Government Services, um, was recently demoted, removed from cabinet because of something to do with an immigration file. Um, right. uh, is Ginny um, is Sims' um, demotion, is it related to uh, BJP exercising this kind of influence through the consulates? No, that, that will be uh, what we say. We are just guessing. It's just a guesswork. Right. So that, that has nothing to do with the, the investigation she's facing. But definitely, uh, not only Genesim, there are others uh, in the cabinet who are who have soft corner for the uh, the Indian uh, pro-India lobby. They will never miss an opportunity to go and pander them. I mean, just uh, an example, when Pulwama attack happened in February, when 40 Indian soldiers had died, Mr. Harry Benz was quick to make a statement to show his solidarity for those Indian soldiers who died in the suicide bombing. But he never uttered a word for uh, political activists being hounded by the same government, uh, political activists being hounded by the Indian forces. So it shows that they are trying to uh, go out of the way to please the Indian establishment, which is well established. There is no question about that. They will never miss an opportunity to attend their events like uh, Diwali Gala or Namaste Canada and whatnot, or even their national events. I mean, on the 15th of August, when we were protesting outside the Indian consulate uh, for what they did in Kashmir, uh, Madam Jinni Sims and Mr. Rajuhan, they were having tea and coffee with the, the Indian consulate. So what can you expect from them? That part ne can never be ignored. But I don't think this has to do anything with the investigation. No, that's, uh, that's very helpful Sims. clarification that, in fact, yeah. Jinni Sims is one of the people who is um, not raising issues about Kashmir, etc. Right. Um, 
uh, that something else is going on there. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the program. We've shot way over time, but I think it's been very worthwhile, and it indicates that we need to have you back here in um, the next couple of months to uh, stay on top of these um, questions, uh, not just in Indian politics, but in the diaspora right here in Prince George. Stuart, thank you so much for giving this opportunity. I really appreciate that. All right. Talk to you soon. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, this is uh, Stuart Parker back with the Monday edition of uh, After 9. And I have on the line uh, the most venerable uh, member of BC's alternative media, uh, Charlie Smith, editor of the Georgia Strait newspaper. Thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thanks. And I, I've never been described that way before, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, you know, we still live in a good old-fashioned patriarchy at the end of the day. So, uh, <laughs> for old. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, we've had a big year. You do a pretty good job at the straight of sort of doing a putting the news of the world in a larger context and. Uh, what do you think the big stories of 2019 have been? I think one of them was, uh, this is the first time that I've really seen where, where the climate penetrated the consciousness of the masses um, to a degree that we've never seen before, where you have these mass public marches. Uh, we saw the rise of Extinction Rebellion, which is a... Um, employing direct action, peaceful direct action, and looking at, at research from history to see what can work in terms of affecting social change. I think Greta Thunberg um, and the, the, the school strikes um, were truly remarkable. And I think the um, movement increased to keep fossil fuels in the ground um, that for a long time you know, you had these environmental groups submitting petitions and, and trying to educate people, and, and um, but you didn't really deal with the, the key problem, which is the source, that you can have all the mitigation measures you want in the world, but as long as we continue to export massive amounts of fossil fuels um, and they continue to be consumed, uh, we, see, we see the consequences. And and, and again, today in, in Australia, it's now extended to Victoria and Melbourne, and these fires are, uh, you know, more than 10,000 people are having to flee their homes. And we've seen it, it also in B.C. in 2017 and 2018, these record forest fires. Well, in Australia now, they've, the, the amount burned double has doubled what happened in those two years in British Columbia when we, we got to about 25,000 square kilometers well, now they're up to 50,000 in Australia. So it's a really horrific situation that's unfolding. Um, but the first step in terms of addressing it is a, is a change in public consciousness. And I, get, I think that's also being manifested in the political process where I think Bernie Sanders, for instance, is, is doing better than expected um, from the conventional media in his attempt to become the Democratic nominee. So, um, I mean, we have this, um, the, these numbers coming out of Australia. The one I found most striking was half a billion animals died. That's uh, in uh, the space of uh, less than a month. 
Uh, that's obviously pretty significant. But um, this was preceded by the Labour Party going into an election with a plan to reduce carbon emissions. And unexpectedly, the voters uh, choosing to reelect the Liberal National Coalition, which had a plan to increase carbon emissions. And the Labour Party has since recanted its position on reducing carbon emissions, and its state government in Queensland, Queensland has approved the biggest coal mining project in the history of the human race. So, I mean, is it, um, I mean, we're certainly seeing an increase in activism, but is public opinion really actually moving? Well, I think that's a, a very good question, and, and to what degree? And it's it's not at a point where it's a majority that is calling for the types of measures that are that are necessary. And the election of Scott Morrison and and his party was, you know, a major setback. Um, and and you know, we saw the same thing in in the UK where Jeremy Corbyn had a. a you know, a very progressive climate platform, and and he fared very poorly, particularly in areas where labor had been strong, and that, you know, it's almost like the right has figured out Ronald Reagan's strategy of how do you get those uh, blue-collar, you know, uh, Reagan Democrats to come over to vote right and vote uh, to, to keep the oligarchs in power, and and that's, that's a serious challenge. I, I'm not sure how it can be addressed, because here in British Columbia, we, we see a similar phenomenon where people thought they were voting, you know, for a progressive Green NDP alliance that was going to make climate a priority. And then what did we get? We get an LNG plant um, that is going to blow the carbon budget to smithereens. We, don't, we get fairly tepid opposition, actually, to the Kinder Morgan now the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is uh, the downstream emissions from that pipeline, will exceed the entire emissions of British Columbia, according to a report done by Mark Jackard, which said, you know, it's 71.4 megatons downstream. British Columbia was in about the 64 megaton range in the most recent count, just over that. And so, so we have a pipeline that's going to generate more carbon dioxide equivalents and the entire province of British Columbia, and we we really don't see the the provincial government, which is being propped up by the Greens, doing a, doing a lot to try to stop it. No, and we had the Greens, of course, vote for the last two budgets, which each contained about three quarters of a billion dollars in fossil fuel subsidies. So uh, uh, we 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 have this thing now. Sometimes it's hard though to figure out how to interpret. Um, election results. And I'm thinking not just of our provincial government, but our federal government. Justin Trudeau went into the last election saying that he was going to complete this pipeline because climate change was his number one priority and that we were going to reduce emissions by increasing the amount of oil we exported. 
And um, similarly, right, we have the Clean BC plan here in British Columbia. The government, I mean, I looked at the year-end fundraising letter from the NDP. Climate is their number one priority. That's why they're investing in Clean BC and why they're going to try to have double the number of mining and logging vehicles on the road by 2050. And in my own riding here in, in Caribou Prince George, it was very strange watching the Liberal candidate in the federal election, Tracy Caligaros, 100% of her social media ads were ads about how climate change was the number one issue and her party and a vote for her and her party was a vote to fight climate change and make that the number one priority. And yet these policies are rolling out. How do you think, how can we interpret how people vote based on what they're being sold? And how do you think average voters are interpreting what appears on the surface to be pretty deep contradictions? Yeah, they are very deep contradictions. We had another example was, was Justin Trudeau promises to get to net zero carbon emissions um, by 2050 and then shortly after the election, our new envir- BC Environment Minister for the country, Jonathan Wilkinson, approves uh, an offshore uh, oil project uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. So, you know, the it's it's going to be interesting to watch. I think with the younger generation too, as they become um, move into positions where they'll have more clout. Uh, both in the voting booth and possibly in in society, um, perhaps we'll see a a backlash of sorts. I keep waiting for the day when, you know, I imagine Greta Thunberg is a prosecutor um, prosecuting these people who are um, creating havoc for the younger people's future because it's it's absolutely devastating. Even now, you know, we're just over 415 parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon, and we can see the consequences. What's going to happen when it hits 420, 425, 430, 440? It's, it's going to be, the, the, we're starting to see the food prices spike, too, and that, that, that's going to be where people really feel it, is, um, is, is in food prices. And I don't think, I'm not sure that the climate movement has done enough to link the um, crisis pocketbook issues in a way that the right has and the right has done it extraordinarily well that that climate is a cost well if you don't deal with climate it's the cost is going to be uh, much greater as nicholas stern reported but particularly uh, i think um at the grocery store and with food and that's where i think the climate movement has to focus a lot more attention going forward sure now we're uh, heading to break at this point we'll be back after this and we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, generational question that i think we're raising about how we make decisions on climate and other issues so uh, hang on we'll be back shortly you're listening to after nine on prince george's community station 93.1 cfis fm we're back with uh, Charlie Smith, editor of the Georgia Strait, uh, looking at the year in uh, in review. We've been talking about the climate issue, but um, some of this discussion is really about uh, seeing uh, a new generation um, 
engaged in uh, protest, engaged in political advocacy, and increasingly mobilizing. And I, I wanted to start from kind of a funny perspective. Um, you know, when we started talking back in the 90s, um, your paper would have been the number one news source of people in their 20s and teens in Vancouver. The Entertainment Weekly, where you have the movie reviews, the film listings, the club listings, the music reviews, and Dan Savage on the back page. And that template ended up being taken all over North America. And you could go to almost any decent-sized city and see that kind of paper. And that's where young people were getting their news and information. Um, at this point, um, a lot of... Uh, how, how has that shifted now that we're looking at a new generation communicating in a different way? Whom are they trusting in terms of news? And what kind of role is the straight playing now in uh, the, uh, the role that it's traditionally held? I think it, it, it's a very challenging media environment because the, the power has shifted, actually, from the, um, the media outlets to, to the people because they can choose whatever they want anyway from anywhere around the world, and that uh, creates uh, some challenges um, on, on one level. I think what we've tried to do is try to deal with what we feel are the most important issues. So Travis Lupik has devoted massive amounts of time and actually written a book about uh, the opioid crisis, and he was ahead of the curve in terms of seeing this problem, it helped that he was living at the corner of Maine and Hastings, you know, just a couple of doors down. Um, so he was seeing what the consequences of the overdoses and the community response, which was very impressive in the downtown east side, um, to what's happened. And so, so that's where Travis, uh, I asked him, I wanted him to do more climate, actually, because he's very climate literate and he knows and he, 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 like many young people, he expressed a, a pessimism. We had another young reporter who was like that, too, who was very climate literate. And she felt she wanted to do things where she could make a difference because she was so... They both were of the opinion that even if you write about climate, is it going to have any effect? So Travis thought, well, maybe I could save lives by writing about the opioid crisis. I personally feel that writing about the climate is is really important, so I continue to do so, um, and, and we have it covered, so it's not like we're not covering it. Um, but that's, that's one area where um, I think what Carlito Pablo, who's one of our reporters, does, which I always get a kick out of, is, you know, the real estate coverage is often about, oh, the architecture and the finish on the buildings, and what Carlito does all the time is when these reports come from city council, he points out what the, the cost of the units and just puts it out that way, and that the city is defining an affordable housing unit as, you know, $3,700 a year, I mean, a month. <laughs> and, the, and the public goes berserk over this, where it happens again and again and again, where these projects come forward, these units are defined as affordable, but they're not affordable to the vast majority of people living in Vancouver. And, and, and I think he's helped in terms of... Um, shaping that um, perspective about what is what is really going on in Vancouver when uh, when they talk about 
addressing the housing. So different people do different things. The other thing where I've, I've focused a great deal of attention on is, is how do you have a newspaper or a media outlet that reflects the city, and how do you incorporate voices, marginalized voices? Um, what is diversity in um, Vancouver in 2019? And diversity is more than just ethnic origin. Uh, diversity is also socioeconomic diversity. So we have a homeless writer, Stanley Woodbine, that will reflect what it's like to be homeless um, and and living that existence. He's a great writer. He's very talented um, and has a sky-high IQ. So, so you cover the homeless. Also, I think what the media does when they're dealing with diversity, they tend to get the kids of color who are born in Canada, which right. is fine. That's diversity. But there's, there's also the people who are immigrants to Canada have a totally different experience. So Carlito Pablo uh, was moved here as an adult from the Philippines. He worked at the Philippines Daily Inquirer. Gurpreet Singh uh, moved to Canada as an adult. Ng Wang Hoon came from Singapore as an adult. Um, and, then, and I don't think the media gives enough thought as to how do you do diversity in a way that... Um, um, can incorporate different voices, and can you get indigenous voices, or you know, Ginger Gosnell Myers, or someone like that, writing for your media outlet to reflect a range of things? And then the other thing is trying to encourage the section editors, whether they're in movies or in arts or in music, to also um, pay heed to diversity. And I was quite happy in their, our our best movies, where they were picking the best movies of the year. And Janet Smith had three of them from China. And I told her, I said, this is really kind of a surprise that usually you think of Hollywood or you might think of European movies, but she was actually finding uh, there's some very interesting cinema coming out of China right now. So that's, that's kind of the general gist of what we do. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to head to a short break. And uh, when we come back, I'll uh, congratulate you for some ex- out, uh, some community recognition for that work before uh, moving on. So we'll be right back. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Going into the uh, bottom of the hour, I still have Charlie Smith on the line. want to congratulate you on your award for uh, courage in reporting from uh, Radical Desi Publications uh, for uh, handling um, Maxime Bernier's efforts to whip up racism in the federal election with um, a different approach of refusing to platform the party, unlike the broadcast consortium's decision to change all of the eligibility rules for the leaders' debate just to let Bernier in. So, first of all, congratulations on the award. I want to come back to... um, you talked about a whole series of issues. We really, you know, we hit a lot of notes when you were speaking about your journalists, the different subjects you cover. And I can't think of any one of those issues that people aren't talking about, aren't interacting with here in Prince George. The opioid crisis, climate, diversity, poverty, wealth inequality. Um, these are issues that... Um, people are dealing with the same problems pretty much throughout English-speaking North America, that the affordability crisis has the same shape, the opioid crisis has the same shape. And I'm wondering, and I've noticed that when I forward articles from the straight, 
uh, people in communities all over North America uh, post them on social media. Um, to what degree is the Straits' geographic uh, relevance stretching? I mean, right now, a lot of Canadian news reporting comes out of the old Manchester Guardian. Uh, to what degree is the Strait um, becoming more of a BC or Canadian paper versus a, a parochially Vancouver one? I, that's a good question, Stuart. I think the um, one of the issues for our financial survival relies on Vancouver because... You can't stray too far, although we do, like one of the articles I wrote, um, uh, it was yesterday, was about this movie about Fox News. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Bombshell. And it basically recasts Megyn Kelly, who was their, their star anchor, as this, uh, uh, you know, almost a feminist icon who took on Roger Ailes and is a role model for working women. And which is ridiculous when you look at what Fox News was doing when she was on the air. And as I was watching that film, I was thinking about the most sycophantic interview I saw her do with Charles Koch, who's one of the notorious Koch brothers. So I pulled that out of the YouTube file and posted a couple of the Charles Koch, uh, where she was asking the most ingratiating questions. He would smile every time she would ask a question. Um, as he was able to put his spin on what a great man he is, uh, even though his company, according to uh, Roger, or according to Rolling Stone, emitted uh, about uh, 24 megatons of greenhouse gases per year. Um, Megyn Kelly had a 69 million dollar contract with NBC, and she was fired um, not long after she defended Halloween costumes that incorporate blackface. Um, so. What I worry about when I see a film like this, which um, and and the performance by Charlize Theron was uh, you know quite impressive, and she may win an Oscar, and it's almost recasting the image of Megyn Kelly in the eyes of of the world, um, and that with that comes some power um, that I wanted to point out. Hey, wait a second! So that's the type of story that we would do that might have continent-wide appeal, but, but at the same time, we'll you know, carry on with the, the, uh, the local stuff. Right. So speaking of carrying on, we've got five minutes to the end of the hour. What do you think? Um, I mean, we know some issues are going to stay big this year. We know climate will stay big. What do you think are some surprises possibly on the horizon in uh, news in British Columbia in 2020? Well, I... As I watch this Green Party leadership race unfold, to, and you may be better informed about it than I am, Stuart, but my sense is that we're not going to see anyone emerge who's going to be um, the type of Green Party leader that you were, which was really trying to unite the, 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 the red-green alliance of sorts, where you can have this intersectional view where the climate, um, the people who suffer the most when there's environmental degradation are often the poorest people and indigenous people. And that if you really want to uh, build a, a quilt on climate, um, you have to 
also look at it through the lens of poverty and through the lens of intersectionality. And that's something that someone like Sven Robinson did exceptionally well as a politician. And I just don't see a Sven Robinson emerging in the, in this race. So the Greens, on the one hand, they almost become this um, kind of middle-of-the-road party, almost like the Liberal Democrats in, in the UK, between the NDP, which is really a, a Labour Party, and and the um, and the BC Liberals, which is a, a totally capitalist party. And, and so I think the voters need a choice there. So I'm not seeing a lot on the... I think on the aquaculture and fish farms, I've been impressed by Lana Popham and what's been happening on that front, that the pressure is building. Like, the Liberals have promised to end open net uh, fish farms by 2025. I'm not sure we can necessarily believe that they'll do that, but the promise was made because I think the pressure has increased um, from Indigenous leaders, but also, uh, and the grassroots, but also I think the um, provincial agriculture minister has been somewhat underestimated after the debacle of the Site C Dam. So um, uh, we could see a rise in uh, fisheries as an issue going back to the kinds of debates we saw in the 90s, that this actually might significantly shape our politics. And of course, there's a strip of hotly contested provincial ridings um, where there are people getting jobs from agriculture, there are people getting jobs from the wild fishery, and um, this could really uh, divide uh, communities uh, or continue to divide them as uh, the government tries to um, uh, make some advances there. I had no idea the B.C. Liberals had uh, flipped no, on this issue. Federal Liberals. Federal Liberals. Ah, well, that's... The that, other thing, uh, though, too, is for John Horgan, if oh. you're looking at it in a Machiavellian sense, you push out the fish farmers, which are Norwegian, or inconvenience them, allow the Trans-Canada pipeline to go through, um, Justin Trudeau has his Trans-Canada uh, pipeline, but then he can point to fish farms as, see, I'm doing something for the coast. So so there is this, uh, like there's a benefit perhaps for wild salmon if there isn't an oil spill, uh, but at the same time, I think this is a, a, a game of sorts where people like Justin Trudeau are looking at it and going, okay, we want this pipeline to go through. What are we prepared to give up as a bargaining chip? Well, we can throw away the aquaculture if we have to. Right. And, so um, this um, this is something we will keep an eye on. I have to end the show now. It would be great okay. to uh, stay uh, a little longer. But um, uh, as you said, um, a lot of this has to do with the ability of social movements to connect people's food and food prices to things. So maybe we'll also see more prominent signs in our grocery stores again about wild versus farmed uh, fish. Anyway, thanks very much for coming okay, on the program. My pleasure. All right. We'll uh, talk to you hopefully in the new year. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM, produced by Stuart Parker, Alan Wishart, and Neil Godby of your Prince George Citizen. Executive producer is Reg Fair. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. <laughs>